Welcome to The Roundtable, a podcast exploring the histories and grounded realities of geopolitical rivalry from the Cold War to the present. We host conversations about how competition affects places, people, and politics around the world to foster more nuanced and open debate on geopolitical rivalry. This is Jessica DiCarlo, and I'm based in Vancouver, Canada. And I'm Seth Schindler, based in Manchester, UK. We're excited to launch this new podcast. It's a part of the Second Cold War Observatory, a project that we're really looking forward to sharing with the listening world. This is our introductory episode, so we want to give you a sense of how we got here and what we plan to do with the Observatory and the Roundtable podcast. It's clear that we're in a pivotal moment in world history that's characterized by intense geopolitical rivalry. However, Most media coverage tends to be a bit sensational, so we plan to offer historically informed analysis that really shows how the U.S.-China rivalry manifests differently in different places around the world. Exactly, and our approach will really try to move beyond those bipolar narratives. So the influence of great power rivalry on places around the world is often overlooked by the narratives that frame U.S.-China competition as this sort of ideological or epic contest between democracy and authoritarianism. We draw on insights from contemporary Cold War history to really uncover the less well-known stories of China-U.S. rivalry. So today we're going to focus on the podcast and explain how it came about, how we approach contemporary great power competition, and why we call the U.S.-China rivalry the Second Cold War. Then provide a preview of what you can expect to hear in the coming months. And, And Seth, I don't know, maybe years. We'll see how this goes. Yeah, let's see. So this project has been a long term one for both of us. We met at a workshop on the Belt and Road Initiative in Beijing, which was hosted by the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And we saw several overlaps in our work, um, which I thought was really interesting because Seth is doing urban oriented work in Africa and I'm focused on development in parts of Asia from Tibet, Nepal to Laos. And the overlaps were uncanny. So we decided to start to collaborate and that resulted in two articles and an edited book. So, Seth, do you want to tell us about some of the key debates that we're working in? Yeah, so I, I guess the key debate that, that motivated some of our thinking was this debate around the new Cold War that you find in journals like Foreign Policy and Foreign Affairs. Obviously, the people who publish in, in those are quite close to the U.S. establishment. But I, I found it very interesting that the debate is, is a comparative one. So how similar or dissimilar is the U.S.-China rivalry from the, the Cold War? Maybe one example in foreign affairs last year, Hal Brands and, and John Gaddis said there's no doubt the U.S.-China rivalry is a new Cold War. And then other people responded. Some people agreed, some didn't. But notably, Joseph Nye wrote in the New York Times that In fact, it's an inappropriate analogy. The U.S.-China rivalry is just too different from the Cold War. And I I find that strange. I mean, no one talks about World War II as an analogy to World War I, right? We take a process-based approach, and and we view the first Cold War and the U.S.-China rivalry as two discrete events with an overarching process. And what is that overarching process? It's really the rise of China. Exactly. So there are a number of things that this allows us to do in our work. Um, what I'm there are a few points I'm really excited about. Just the longer historical perspective, rather than looking at China-U.S. rivalry as this post-Trump moment, we right. really it as um, something that has a much longer history that informs decisions and 
relationships that are um, taking place today. I also think it really helps us move beyond kind of a Beijing or Washington DC centric position. While we do think about the objectives and agendas in these places, um, we really wanna see how they play out in the world and on the ground for various governments and people and environments. Well, so we're that's challenge. Uh, indeed, and that's what you've been doing for years in Laos, isn't it? Yes, yes. So I've been working on a few infrastructure projects in Laos, or not working on them, researching them, <laughs> and um, a railroad and special ec economic zones. And in terms of geopolitics surrounding these projects, you know, you have the broader narrative of China-U.S. competition in Southeast Asia. But when you get down to the project level, China is far and away the largest investor in Laos. And the U.S. is ostensibly absent from debates of infrastructure competition. Uh, you have actors like the Asian Development Bank or Vietnamese investors that have more influence in Laos, or another way to say that is Laos has more relationships with these kind of regional actors. And that you know, really raised an interesting point, um, thinking about what regional actors we should be thinking about beyond this kind of big meta bipolar competition. And Seth, I think you've seen similar things in Tanzania, is that right? Well, uh, it's interesting. I mean, that was the, my introduction to large-scale Chinese overseas infrastructure projects. I received a small grant to research what was going to be Africa's largest port. Uh, the Tanzanian government signed a deal with a Chinese company based in Hong Kong to build Africa's largest port in a, a small city north of Dar es Salaam. So Dar es Salaam is on the coast, and it has a port, but it's quite congested. So this port in Bagamoyo was going to relieve some of that congestion. It's about 60 or 70 miles north. But it was quite interesting because, first of all, the port was never built. So I was going there every summer for about five years. And every summer, I would find that nothing had happened. So I learned a few things. And the first is that you shouldn't apply for funding to research an infrastructure project that hasn't started yet. Um, but I guess more importantly, I found it really interesting. And maybe it was the third year I was there, I met with a municipal official and he said, have you just come from Dar es Salaam? And I said, yeah, of course, I, I landed there and I transited through Dar es Salaam. And he asked me if I'd interviewed any officials. And I said, yeah, well, I had a couple of meetings. And he said, did you find out any information? Do you know if this port is going to be built? And I just found it so interesting that municipal government officials were really in the dark. And so there's, on the one hand, this real centralization of politics, you could say, um, that's going on. That's, I guess, necessary if you're going to build Africa's largest port. But on the other hand, Every year that I went there, the city did change. And really just the announcement that this port was going to be built catalyzed a tremendous amount of activity as people tried to get land in places that they thought would be more valuable. People subdivided plots, speculated. And so the city changed just as a result of this announcement. And I think that's the other really interesting thing that relates to what you were saying, Jess, that on the one hand, there is this geopolitics. There really is a, a U.S.-China rivalry, but it certainly doesn't condition what happens uh, at the level of a, of a small city, right? I mean, all sorts of, it, it triggered a process, but this uh, process was very independent from those geopolitics. Exactly. And this is such an important point, and it's, it's central to what we're doing with the observatory in this podcast, that geopolitics offers a kind of layer of context, but great powers don't actually determine events on the ground. Um, so we'll see these competitions playing out everywhere from Tanzania to the Arctic to outer space. And, you know, we're trying to explore what those actually look like in place, as, as you just described. And we've done this with several scholars in an edited book. So, so the book um, 
It's coming out in September 2022. It's called The Rise of the Infrastructure State, How U.S.-China Rivalry Shapes Politics and Place Worldwide. That's through Bristol University Press. And we're really excited about this compilation because it offers geographic breadth. Um, it emphasizes the agency of third countries. And we try to focus on different infrastructure sectors from surveillance infrastructures, energy infrastructures to transport infrastructures. So it gives us a much need, I think a much needed comparison across different places where competition's unfolding, across different sectors, because it is extremely sector specific. And even across time, when you're looking at, for example, um, there's a chapter on um, radioactive infrastructures in Namibia that is um, right. more historic. So we're really looking forward to that. But I guess maybe, Seth, we want to take a step back and explain how we arrived at this book. Yeah, sure. Well, as you mentioned earlier, we met in Beijing and we were both looking at infrastructure projects in different parts of the world, but we saw some commonalities. And on the one hand, we saw that governments such as Laos or Tanzania, Nepal, many others could play the U.S. and its allies off against China. So um, that's already quite interesting that you have China that's that's emerging as a major force in the global infrastructure sector, right? And many of these countries were pursuing developmental objectives and infrastructure projects that had been on the agenda for sometimes decades. But in order to build them, because they're so complex, we also noted that uh, many countries, many governments were forced to implement some institutional reforms. And this could be anything from, you know, resituating power from one bureaucracy to another or enhancing capacity in, in one key part of, of, of the bureaucracy. And so the result of these institutional reforms is what we call the 21st century infrastructure state. And the 21st century infrastructure state, of course, is designed to uh, undertake infrastructure projects, but also it seeks to mobilize global capital to build infrastructure that integrates places with the global economy. So much of this infrastructure is really transnational in scope. Exactly. So, so we saw um, an opportunity to really look at this phenomenon across Asia, Africa, and Latin America in the book. And we're so lucky to have some really um, brilliant scholars and writers doing that alongside us. We are. So throughout this project, that paper led us to want to read a lot of Cold War history and really start to dig a bit deeper into the notion of a new Cold War and answer the question, you know, is this an appropriate term to use? Why? Why not? And what other ways can we think about competition in this present moment? That's right. Um, yeah, I guess I spent most of the pandemic reading new Cold War history. And the main debate, I guess, is between orthodox folks who think that it really was this bipolar rivalry between the U.S. and Soviet Union with everything organized in Washington and Moscow versus people who take a more global approach and see that there are all sorts of regional manifestations. I'll just give you an example of the orthodox approach. So I have a book here from Melvin Leffler published in 2007. It's called For the Soul of Mankind, the United States, the Soviet Union, and the Cold War. And he says the book, this is a quote, the book then is about men and their ideas and their fears and their hopes. So each chapter is a different American or Soviet leader. And it's quite interesting Then these are the primary protagonists, right? These, these men from, from the US or Soviet Union. And okay, that's, that's one approach. But another okay. approach that I find more convincing is offered from Adarn Westad, published in the same year, 2007, in his book, The Global Cold War. And he says, quote, this book argues that the United States and the Soviet Union were driven to intervene in the third world by the ideologies inherent in their politics. 
Locked in conflict over the, over the very concept of European modernity to which both states regarded themselves as successors, Washington and Moscow needed to change the world in order to prove the universal applicability of their ideologies. And the elites of, this, of the newly independent states proved fertile ground for their competition. So here you have this ideological and economic competition playing out between the US and Soviet Union in the third world. But he's very careful to note that third world elites are not so easily swayed. In fact, they have quite a bit of agency of their own. He says, quote, third world elites often framed their own political agendas in conspicuous response to the models of development presented by the two main contenders of the Cold War. So I find that approach much more satisfying. And I think after that book, we see this proliferation of new Cold War scholarship. And now there's even a book series from the University of North Carolina Press that offers, quote, new interpretations of the Cold War era made possible by the opening of Soviet, East European, Chinese, and other archives. Books in the series based on, are based on multilingual and multi-archival research, incorporate interdisciplinary insights and new conceptual frameworks that place historical scholarship in a broad international context. So I just found that great as a geographer and just to think it resonates with quite a bit of your work, but you know, this multi-scalar work. So looking at things from a global, national, local perspective, how they're interrelated, multilingual and multi-sided. So looking in such a, a wide variety of places. Exactly. And, and I agree. I was very inspired by this reading and scholarship, and we decided to take some of that and try to apply some of the insights from this new Cold War history to um, develop ideas that might apply to the current China-U.S. rivalry. In an article that we published in Area, we're looking at different emergent geographies of U.S.-China competition using insights from Cold War history. So, for example, you know, you could take the orthodox view that sees uh, Washington, D.C. and Beijing as at the top of a hierarchy with other countries subordinated. However, after doing this reading, um, you know, like the First Cold War, it was clear there were other competing centers of power, particularly regional powers. So how do we look at those in the present moment? So in addition, those regional politics are drawn into great power rivalry. For example, um, if you look at the media coverage of how the U.S. exit from Afghanistan happened and how Central Asia geopolitics had been kind of refracted through a lens of U.S.-China rivalry in that process. So what we do in this article is really try to offer a way to look at these processes, not just from the orthodox D.C. Beijing perspective, but um, as involving state agency, middle powers, regional powers, and unexpected connections. That's right. And I think one thing that I found most interesting from some of this is the reappraisal of China's role in the first Cold War. Rather than a supporting cast member, it's really seen as a, a primary protagonist by many historians. So I'm thinking here of the work by Jeremy Friedman. His book, his first book, Shadow Cold War, shows how China and the Soviet Union competed for allegiance and, uh, and client states and allies in the third, third world. But then at other times, it, the U United States really considered China the primary protagonist. You can read Greg Brzezinski's book, Winning the Third World. And I think a really great takeaway is offered by Matthew Rothwell. He has an excellent article called The Road is Tortuous, The Chinese Revolution and the End of the Global 60s. And he makes the point that in this, this long global 60s, it's really China rather than the Soviet Union that is, quote, the generative force for global revolution. And I think that that history is being rewritten and rediscovered as we speak. Great, exactly. So we, we've read all of this great history and I've really learned so much 
and are now thinking about how to apply this multi-scalar, multi-sided, multilingual research to what we're doing today as a collaborative within the Cold War Observatory that we've started. Between the observatory and the podcast, I, I guess, Seth, why don't we um, turn to what the listeners can look forward to learning about on this podcast? Yeah, sure. One of the main differences between the first and second Cold Wars is the territorial logic. So if containment was the, the main American strategy in the, the first Cold War, that's no longer possible. There's in fact a really interesting quote from Mike Pompeo. He gave a talk in the Nixon Library and he says, well, it's just not possible. China is already within our borders or something like this. I think what that illustrates is that the US and China are competing in the same territories, but they're not competing for territory, right? They're competing for centrality in a number of networks. And, and I'm most interested in talking with people about the competition in infrastructure networks, digital networks, and production networks. Exactly. And, and my work overlaps with that, with Belt and Road infrastructure and Chinese investments across Asia. And I think we can also expect to hear from experts in the fields of finance. You know, finance underpins a lot of these networks we're talking about. People who are thinking about standards with the rise of China. There's a lot of questions around standard setting and social and environmental spheres. So our hope for this podcast is to really bring in experts and people who are working on the ground in, in these various places where competition is happening onto this podcast to share more nuanced stories around rivalry. That's right. And just to remind you in closing, this is part of a broader project that we founded called the Second Cold War Observatory. So once again, we're a global network of scholars. We're convinced that great power rivalry will have far-reaching influence and shape societies, economies, and ecologies worldwide. And we hope to invite a bunch of uh, friends and colleagues on to talk about how. Exactly. So you'll be able to listen to this podcast on Spotify and Apple, and you can find more information and sign up for our newsletters at secondcoldwarobservatory.com. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening.